This morning, we're continuing in our we're continuing in our look and consideration and appreciation of this man who purposefully willingly knowingly enters the garden of gethsemane as the gateway to the cross this is the gateway to the cross we have to be very careful as we assess the various areas of work and ministry that Jesus accomplishes. And we never want to make one more important than the other. But we will say this. There is a great and grand distinction between Gethsemane and the cross. In Gethsemane, God's man of war, and I use that term man of war very specifically because I think the Holy Spirit wants to relate something of Jesus to someone else who was a man of war. And we'll do that, I think, next week. But this man of war, this man of God, this son of God, son of man, enters the garden as God's man of war to do battle against the accumulated disobedience of all of God's people. Now you think, how much disobedience is in any one of our lives, even in one day? But the accumulated disobedience of all of God's people is going to be dealt with and overcome and declared as victorious in this one man's obedience. And so the battle in Gethsemane is a battle for, as Paul puts it in Romans 1.5, for the obedience of faith. Not for himself, but for the obedience of faith in us. Remember, everything that Jesus is experiencing, the whole reason and purpose for the incarnation itself, from beginning to end, where is the end of the incarnation? It never ends because he is eternally the incarnate son of God as the heavenly man. So it began in a time in the conception of Mary and never ends. But the entire purpose here is to be on our behalf for us so that as he accomplishes these victories and wins the day and pays the price, he does it on our behalf. Remember that. He does it on our behalf. He does it for us. He does it because of us. 
someone asked me one time, and it was really the Holy Spirit. I think you'll figure that out in a moment. Can I give a summation of our salvation or something like that in 10 words or less? And right out of my mouth comes, Jesus died for us, because of us, instead of us. FBI. I mean, if that wasn't the Holy Spirit, it just came right out, just, just like that. And I didn't even realize until later, Jim, that FBI. <gasps> he died what? FBI. F, because of us. B, because of us. I'm sorry, for us, because of us, and I, instead of us. So that's the FBI of our salvation. I just give that to you. I take no credit for it. It's just the Holy Spirit. He's the author of that and everything else in us. So again, we're looking at how does this man accomplish what he accomplishes? How can he do it? This is a man. This is a human being. How does he do it? He enters the garden for the greatest battle of all time to wage war against his people's disobedience. Having already throughout his entire life, and I'll probably emphasize this a couple of times, wearing the full, can you put that down? Full armor of God. Remember when Paul says, take up the full armor? We emphasize the word armor. I think sometimes we better make sure we're emphasizing the adjective before the noun. Remember adjectives, modify nouns and stuff like that. What kind of armor is it? The full armor of God. So last week, we saw Jesus entering the garden, having his mind what? Circumference encompassed by, wrapped in the truth. Remember that? We, we talked about that. So this morning, we continue with this. And Jesus not only enters the garden with truth, but as a result of that, he is also entering the garden wearing the breastplate of righteousness. He is prepared for the battle not only in truth, but he's prepared for the battle in righteousness. Now, this should hopefully be instructive for all of us because this is how we live our lives. Rather, it is how the Holy Spirit lives out the life of Christ in us. And so this is also about us. So look at verse 14b. We're in Ephesians chapter 6, 14b. For those of you who are wondering, what in the world? We're talking about Jesus entering the garden in Gethsemane from Matthew 26 and talking about the various aspects of what is happening here. And a primary aspect is he is able to accomplish what he accomplishes because he is wearing the full armor of God. And that's what we're doing for those of you who haven't been here a little bit. So 14b of Ephesians 6, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Do you see it? What is the verb there? And is a coordinate conjunction linking what happened about the truth. But look, and what? Having put on. What, what tense is that for those of you who are brilliant in English? It's already a completed action of the past. 
is something that he has done, and not only that he has done, but he continues to do on a regular, daily, moment-by-moment basis. It's not only that he put on the breastplate of righteousness and whatever, but he continually wears it consciously, decisionally. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So when a soldier goes into battle, you've seen enough of these movies with Rome. And Paul is obviously describing a common soldier's garb. So when the people are looking at this, they, oh yeah, I remember that's what they were in this and what they were, this is how they, and interestingly, we, we, uh, not going to make this a full study of this. In order for a soldier, that this is about us now, in order for a soldier to put on his armor, he could not successfully do it alone. He couldn't do it alone. These men had to help one another dress themselves. What does that say about us, the body of Christ? We have to help one another in the armor of God. I can't put it on by myself. I must put it on, and you must help me, and I must help you. It's a corporate issue. But, of course, with the Lord Jesus, it's a singular issue. And so the soldier stood behind this great big old shield. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I get ahead of myself. This soldier enters with a breastplate on him, with this thing around his chest to do what? To protect himself from the assaults of the enemy to harm his vital organs. And so especially the emphasis here in the spiritual area is his heart, his heart. Now, what is the heart? The heart is understood biblically as the seat of the location of our emotions, our desires, our motives. You, you remember that, the heart. Everybody knows what that is, I think. And so, biblically, the word righteousness has to do with God's own rightness in himself as displayed in all of his works. And so, he's wearing a breastplate. Jesus is wearing the breastplate of righteousness. He is having his heart's affections and motives and desires and decisions protected by and enwrapped in the very righteousness of God himself. And also, of course, Jesus is the righteous one. So remember, last week we saw that Jesus entered the garden wearing the belt of truth. And that truth kept his mind set where? On the truth about God and about his own purpose for going to the cross. So he enters the garden with truth. The arrows and the uh, activities of the world and his, maybe his own flesh are coming against his mind to say, are you sure this is right? Could there be another way? All these assaults. But Jesus gets through this by having his mind girded about in 1 Peter 1.13 with truth. This morning we see that Jesus was also wearing the breastplate of righteousness. So when Jesus enters the garden... And his face with the horror. What is the horror about? Taking to himself our sin. And the terror. What is the terror about? Bearing the wrath of God in his body. Mixed with joy. His heart's desire and decision had to be protected from making a decision not to fulfill the righteous demands of God. He had, to be dis- dis- he had to be protected against a decision as a human being not to go with the will of God. 
And part of what protected that decision, part of what of it was, was his living in the midst of and relying upon and being infused with the righteousness of God, of God himself. So he enters the, the uh, garden prepared in heart to accomplish the righteous will of God. He already knows what's going to be happening. And he enters already knowingly deciding to go all the way to the cross. And he can do this because he's wearing the full armor of God. So he enters the garden as God's righteous man whose single purpose is to build a house for the Lord's name, a house in which the name of the Lord will be exalted. That's his purpose. I'm going in here and I'm going to do battle in the garden for the will of man. And I'm going to pay the price at the cross for the disobedience of man so that God's house may be built, so that God's name may be honored and exalted in his house. So his single-minded purpose is his heart is guarded in the righteousness of God. Now, what about us? We enter life. And we begin to live our life in Christ as believers. And how many of us as believers have sinned at least once having been saved? Any of us? Wow, a lot of hands are not going up. Phil, we're going to need an altar call for repentance here, brother. We're going to need an altar call. And what happens when you sin, when I sin? What is one of the primary arrows or darts of Satan against our hearts when I sin? What is it? Anything? What does anybody feel? What? We're not saved. Condemnation. Guilt. You're not going to make it. This is the 38th time you've done this this week. And what are those darts? What is the purpose of those arrows coming against us? Is to weaken our hearts. Our hearts dependence upon and looking to our foundation in Christ. What does Romans 5.1 say? Everybody should know Romans 5.1. If you don't know it, you need to write it down and memorize it. It is a requirement to live by. Romans 5.1 says what? Having been, therefore having been. What is that? Past tense. Having been what? Justified by faith. We have when? Right now, peace with God. And so this issue of justification, what does justification mean? It means that God forensically, legally, declares us to be not guilty. Now, how many of us know this? I'm going to just make a wild thing here. Billy Bath. Billy, stand for a moment. Let everybody see who I'm talking about. This is, come on, good-looking guy. You see, okay, that's his son up there, Harrison. You see where Harrison got his good looks, huh, from his mama. And so, Billy knows that, right? My grandchildren have great looks, but not from me, honey child. Believe me, not from me. And so Billy commits a crime. He goes out and steals something. He actually commits a crime. 
But in court, the lawyers and the judges and whatever cannot prove it. So what is the decision of the jury? What? Not guilty. It can't be proven, so he's what? Not guilty. So forensically, legally, Billy is declared what? Not guilty. But does that mean that he's actually not guilty? No, he's guilty as a snake. But you see, the law says he's not guilty. So now he can live his life as if he had never stolen the thing. It is not a declaration of your innocence because there is no innocence in anyone except Jesus himself. But it is the eternal declaration. Even in heaven, we will be in heaven forever knowing that we were actually literally guilty and yet the blood of Jesus paying the full price for all our sin, God has hammered down on the desk of his law, not guilty. Why? Because the penalty of that sin has been paid for by another man, and Billy was in that other man being represented as if Billy himself had never stolen anything. So there are two issues about justification. Do we see them? We must get both of them firmly in our minds. 1 John 1.7 For the blood of God's Son cleanses us from all sin. Colossians 2.13, having forgiven us, what? All the trespasses that were against us. Colossians 2.13, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the first aspect of our justification is that God literally declares us as forgiven, which means not guilty. Why? Because the sin has been paid for. And then the second aspect of that justification, which is the result of the forgiveness, is the declaration or the imputing to or the giving to us as a gift, the full, complete absolute righteousness of the Son of God himself. Now, Gary, that's big. That God sees you with the things that you did this week as not guilty and as righteous in his Son and as righteous as his Son. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that I can now live any way I want? Don't think that you can insult the grace of God by doing anything you want. Because our God is a disciplining God. Amen? But in order for us to proclaim Him and to be His image bearers, we must understand that we have been justified at the cross in Christ because of the work of the cross and have appropriated or received that justification 
by God's gift and working of the Holy Spirit in us called faith. Do you see, I didn't put any of the onus or the basis or the responsibility or the burden of this on any of us. It's all on God. And to whom does he give it? To those who are in Christ before the foundation of the world, according to God's creative and elective purposes. I can't go any further than that. So, Sue, why did God have you in mind before the foundation of the world? I don't know. But he did, and you're sitting here today as proof that you were in Christ before the foundation of the world according to the Father's eternal will. Correct? Now, where's boasting in that? You see, Jesus wears this breastplate of righteousness. Am I still on? Jesus, what's the matter? Am I on now? Wait, hold on. Eddie's doing something back there. I was making a pass like LSU. This is not working either? Are we out of batteries? One, two, three. Oh, there we go. Okay. Thank you, Miguel. It's the power of Miguel. And Jesus enters the garden. He enters the garden already having God's righteousness. Remember, he is the righteousness of God in a man and as a man. But he's doing it so that we, that we can have his own righteousness. Second, he not only enters with the, his mind girded about with truth to protect him from the lies and the insinuation and the deceptions of the enemy. I'm telling you again and again as I need to tell myself again and again, we need constantly to be calling upon, submitting to, looking to, be aware of the Holy Spirit's presence and ministry and will and direction, provision, protection, etc. in our lives because we are so vulnerable to deceptions of all kinds of things out there. We need to be wearing truth. Thy word is truth, John seventeen seventeen. you remember. And we need to be wearing, as Jesus wore, the breastplate of righteousness. We are actually wearing it in position, right? You are righteous. But what we're talking about right now is are you wearing it in practice? Correct? In practice. Jesus is wearing it not only as his state of being as a human, but he's wearing it as a practice. And it's protecting his heart. And as a result of that, we have the next one, the shoes of the gospel. Jesus enters the garden prepared in his walk. The word walk, peripateo, is a Greek word, which means your daily kind of, your, your daily living, what you do every day. When the Bible says walk this way, walk that way, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, it's how we're living our lives on a moment-by-moment basis. The soldier's shoes gave him the ability to stand firm without slipping and sliding during the battle and to move forward steadily and purposefully moving the enemy back. 
So he couldn't go in there with bare feet. He couldn't go in there with oh, heavy feet weighted down so much that he couldn't walk. They, they, without going into the kind of shoe they were, we did that one time before years ago. But he was wearing a shoe made in such a way that he was able to withstand the slipperiness and the sliding around him and to move him forward. It gave him a firm foundation on which to walk. So the first two pieces of armor that we just discussed dealt with the internal reality. Now we come to the external manifestation of that. Because the mind is girded with truth and because the heart is, if you would, protected in righteousness, what? That means that now I am able to walk in the good and in the power and in the reality of the gospel. In other words, my life, the life of Jesus every moment is a clear description an expose, if you would, of the gospel of God's good love and mercy for his people. Jesus enters that way. He enters knowing my purpose is to achieve God's will. And what is God's will? The gospel. The gospel that God saves us and that we did not merit it. Correct? You know what merit means? We did not earn it. Now, let me say a comment about that. I, I agree when we say grace is not merited, but it's actually greater than that. You see, we weren't saved because of any merit in us, because that's kind of a neutral thing. I didn't earn it. It's worse than that. We were saved in the midst of and in spite of absolute continual demerit in us. If you want proof of that, where is it? Titus 3, verse 3. And Paul gives us a litany of the activity and the purposeful pursuit of sin in my life. So it's not that I didn't merit it. It's worse than that. I absolutely demerited it. You see, because merit is kind of a neutral thing. Okay, I, I didn't do anything to earn it, but I got it anyway. Well, that's not too bad. Ronnie, I got something I didn't earn, but that's pretty good. You know, I mean, that's, that's not the bad. It's worse than that. There wasn't any absolutely activity, anything about my life, anything about, there was nothing about my life in all of its ways that did not actively, persistently, and comprehensively demerit God. You see, we don't believe that, do we? We believe there are a few things. There's some stuff. We believe, well, certainly this person, because of good, nothing. We were so far on the other side of merit that we were infinity on the other side. That's why. That's what rather makes the grace of God so incredibly glorious. It's not so much I did not merit I actively demerited the grace of God. And it is that kind of a person that Jesus comes to rescue in his blood at the cross. So Jesus enters the potentially slippery ground of Gethsemane already having put on the readiness of the gospel. He has already put it on. He's wearing the shoes of the gospel as he enters the garden. As he entered and walked through life, he is wearing the shoes. We cannot expect to overcome sin and to walk in victory if we spend 
I, I would say human being, we're going to have to give ourselves a little latitude, but we spend too much time considering sin. Amen? What do I mean by considering sin? How many of you don't know what I mean by that? You know what I'm talking about, how we consider sin? You know, our thoughts, words, deeds, desires, consider sin. And in those moments, those are the moments that need to be putting sin to death. And so we've been considering sin in a couple of areas or maybe just one area or whatever it is. And we begin to walk forward. And then we're attacked by the enemy in some way or another. And we find ourselves being overcome. And we find ourselves being defeated. And we wonder, why, God? Why? Why? Why is this happening, God? Because we are considering sin. We have taken off our shoes. And we're on slippery ground and stepping on hard rocks, you know, and, we kind of, and we're unstable. The only way to be victorious all the time is to the moment, the moment. May I repeat that word? The moment. May I say it one more time? The moment the Holy Spirit tells you you're considering sin. The moment. At that moment, put it to death by saying, no. No. That keeps the shoes on on a practical way. That keeps our walk Worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Worthy of the goodness of God. So this week as we're walking in life, let's ask the Holy Spirit, Father, would you make me increasingly sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Because here I know is what we do. We get convicted or get a thought. Don't say that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't look at that. Don't think that. Are you with me? Anybody not with me on this? And we get that, and what do we do? Well, and we begin to think of other, and we put the thought aside, you see. Get rid of that thought. Well, you know, it's, it may be, I wonder if it could be, and we begin to rationalize. The moment we get that, conviction what should we do what should we do at that moment say what to it no to that sin if the Holy Spirit calls your hand and gives you a question about what it is that you're thinking what it is that you're doing where it is that you're going what it is that you're looking at what words you're going to say. If there's any hesitation in your mind about that, the better part of valor is to stop it. Correct? Stop it. Stop it. Jesus' entire life is characterized by what we find in Colossians 1.13. He walked in a manner worthy of the Lord. Of Ephesians 4.1, therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, what? What? Exhort you to do what? Walk in a manner of the calling with which you have been called. In a manner that displays the gospel. That displays the goodness and love of Christ in his atoning work. 
By the way, and I have this in here. I want to make a comment about it. When our feet get dirty walking in the world, years ago, we were raised, my family, we lived on Camp Street near Bell Castle. And, you know, we're kids. We're outside walking, running, and all that, muddy feet, dirty, you know, and all that. So what happened? My mama, for all her faults, kept an immaculate house. Ain't no dirt in my mama's house, believe me. And don't you bring any in either, Jim. You know, don't bring any dirt in my mama's house. She was really something else in that area. And so we come in from playing. And what does she make sure we do before we come into the house? We clean our feet. So what does Jesus say in John 13 to the disciples? All of you are washed and are clean by the word that I've spoken. You remember that? All you ne- so we had the righteousness of Christ. But what do we need on a daily basis? We need to keep our feet clean. On a daily basis as we get into sin, we need to have the washing of the water or the word by the Spirit continually keeping our feet cleansed of the dirt. So when it comes on, the Holy Spirit washes it off. That's how we live our lives. As we're kept. In the good of the gospel, wearing the feet in such wearing the shoes in such a way that our feet are able to walk in a way that displays Christ. And then Jesus enters, taking up, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the enemy. The soldier, remember, stands behind this great big shield. It's a big old thing. It covers about the whole entirety of his body. And what is the purpose of it? So when the enemy begins to fire darts at them, arrows at them, flaming, because these things a lot of times are on fire, the stuff that's on the outside of the shield extinguishes the flames. Jesus enters the garden fully covered with this shield so that when the enemy, not if when, not if when, not if when the enemy fires all these thoughts, these accusations, these opportunities, when he causes us like Eve to see the fruit out there is, hmm, looks pretty good. We can take up and stand behind the shield of faith. Now, who is the shield? Not what is the shield, but who is the shield? God himself is our shield. So what we're doing, we're standing in Christ, calling upon the Holy Spirit. Protect me not from these arrows. Never ask God to protect you from the arrows. 1633 of John tells you the arrows are coming regularly all the time. So we can't ask, sissy, for no arrows. But protect me what? Holy Spirit, keep me protected. That is, keep my heart, my mind, my inner person from being infected by, damaged by in my soul these arrows of Satan so that I will not be cooperating with them, so that I will not be giving myself into these issues that Satan is firing against my mind. And so the soldier stands behind this shield Already, Jesus enters already having, wearing, remember, truth and righteousness 
And so what now? We have the shield of faith. There's a lot to say about this, but I don't want to go into a lot of detail. Jesus enters the garden by looking at one person. Jesus enters the garden by looking to one person. And who is that? The Father. He enters that way. And as he keeps his eyes and minds on God the Father and the purpose of God the Father, he is guarded, if you would, by that purpose, by that personal presence of God so that he is able to withstand all those arrows that are coming against him. How, how, who knows how many arrows are coming against this man as he enters the garden? Who knows what's going on in his mind as he is being, if you would, attacked constantly by the enemy? We don't have any reference to it. The only reference we have of Jesus being attacked by the enemy, any specific reference is where? In chapter 4 of either Luke or Matthew. Remember that three times? And you see there the activities of the shield of faith. He takes up the shield. And these arrows that are coming against him, who knows how many arrows are coming against this man as he enters the garden, as he sees the cross in front of him. And what about us? Constant arrows in our lives. Constant, unrelenting, withering attack of the enemy without any cessation. And it's going to happen until we leave this earth. But can we live in a way without being damaged by those? Yes, as we keep on the full armor of God. You see, Jesus enters the garden already living a life in the armor of God, already prepared, already prepared. How can he win the day? Not because it's Jesus, but because Jesus, the man of God, entered, outfitted, if you would, within the entire presence and purpose of God led by the Spirit. All of this, one more comment, all of this, because what I said there caused me to remember this. All of this is done in and by and through the Holy Spirit. Correct? The Holy Spirit makes all of this possible. So we can say that we are saved and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, can't we? Who saves us? God the Father's will saves us. Who saves us? Christ's atonement saves us. Who saves us? Holy Spirit's application in us, dwelling in us, what? Saves us, correct? So our salvation is the work of the entire Trinity of God. So next week, we'll talk about the last, what is it, three pieces of the armor, or at least the next two or whatever. So come on back next week, hopefully. Thank you.